Tonight, we're going to all the way back to the beginning, close to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking in the book of Exodus chapter 2. Now, whether you use your Bibles like me or the YouVersion Bible app on your phones, your smartphones, your tablets, as you're finding your way to Exodus chapter 2, let's just kind of remind ourselves of how the book of Exodus came to be. It's written by Moses after the events of his leadership has already begun. So he's, he's reflecting back and writing about the events, historical events that took place in his life. But he starts with the book of Genesis, so he gives us basically a huge snapshot from creation all the way to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Like He gives us the snapshot of all of that in the book of Genesis. But the book of Exodus is where he inserts himself into the story. It's the one part that creates the autobiography of the life of Moses. And he gives us the origin story, which I love the the way and the significance of the origin story here. And in Exodus chapter 2, we find out the interesting circumstances that are taking place at the birth of Moses. Beginning of verse 1, if you'd read with me, it says this. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. Now back up real quick. That just means they're part of the priestly tribe. Right? They have deep roots spiritually. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, why did she hide him for three months? Context matters, right? If we take the text out of context, all we're left with is the con. So we need to understand the context here. Context is, there's a new pharaoh in charge of Egypt. It's not the same pharaoh that made Joseph the second in command, if you're familiar with the story. Right? Because the Israelites ended up in Egypt specifically because there was a famine in the land and God had used Joseph's circumstances to save his people. So Joseph's family moves into Egypt and under Joseph's leadership, a second in command of Egypt, they grow and they flourish. They have now multiplied and they are massive. And now there's two pharaohs removed from that pharaoh. And what we know is the new pharaoh is entirely intimidated by the people of Israel. In fact, he begins to look around and realize that there's so many of the Israelites, at this point more than a million of them, that he quickly realizes if they want to create problems, they're so big they could create a revolution They could try to overthrow him and the government of Egypt. So he begins to try to come up with ways to make sure that doesn't happen. The first pharaoh after Joseph enslaves them. But what we see is the hand of God blessing them and they continue to multiply. So now the second pharaoh removed from the one that had hired Joseph has now come up with an even more despicable way to control them. He orders that every male child born of an Israelite to be immediately thrown into the Nile River to be drowned to prevent them from continuing to multiply. So now that context tells us why this mother hides her child for as long as she can hide her child as possible. So she hid him for three months, verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer... She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. 
that Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. I love a good origin story. I love it, right? And some of you have heard me talk about that when it comes to movies and television. Like, I love the backstory. And what we get here is the origin story of one of the most famous people in all of Scripture and probably one of the top two or three most famous people in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Moses. How many of you have heard of Moses? Right? Moses is one of those, like, we, we understand it. And probably most of us know it know his name because of what he did when he went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And he leads them out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea miraculously, and then leads them during their wandering years in the wilderness before they cross into the promised land. That's the Moses that we know. There's only 10 verses that give us the origin story. And then in the next verse, we find out he's 40 years old. So we skip an awful lot, right? We skip an awful lot of Moses' life. But at least we know the significance of this. And I would venture to say that almost all of us in this room have heard or told or talked about the life of Moses at some point in our life. I would argue, though, that if it weren't for his sister, we wouldn't have a Moses to talk about. All we know about his sister at this point is that she's somewhere around middle school age, junior high age. She's probably somewhere between 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, no older than 12 at this point. And her baby brother has been born, and she knows that he falls under the edict of Pharaoh's throw him into the Nile deal. And they don't want to do that. Like she, just, she doesn't want that to happen. So the mom holds this baby and hides this baby that we now know as Moses, hides him for three months, as long as she could hide him. And then she realizes, I can't hide him anymore. And so what does she do? She makes a, a basket, which by the way, the Hebrew word in here for the basket that she makes is only found one other place in scripture, and it's the word ark. It's a pretty, pretty cool little tidbit of information like we find out she builds the first ark and puts Moses in it and then intentionally pushes it down the Nile to a place where she knows Pharaoh's daughter often bathes and then sends his little sister to follow and keep an eye on him and her job is to make sure that nothing bad happens to him until Pharaoh's daughter gets a hold of him Now, I don't know much about the story about who Pharaoh's daughter was and why the mother would have done this. There had to be more to that story that we don't know. But what we do know is that her plan worked. And Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe. She finds the baby. And here's where the sister inserts herself into the story so beautifully. Now, imagine this. Imagine you're an 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old girl. And you see your little sister, your little brother being rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. What are you going to do? 
There's wisdom here. What does she do? She pops up at the perfect time and says what? Hey, looks like you got a baby on your hands. And she had heard Pharaoh's daughter say, this is a Hebrew baby. So she goes, hey, would you like me to go help find you someone to nurse this baby for you? I know you can't do it, but I, I could find you somebody. Sure, that's a great idea. Why don't you go find me somebody and I will pay them to nurse my child that I just found in the water. And so who does Moses' sister go get? Her mom. Catch this. The wisdom of a little child and the beauty and the courage of a little child to say to Pharaoh's daughter who had made the edict that this boy should be killed says to her, I'll go find you the perfect person to nurse this child. Brings back her mom. Pharaoh's daughter says, you're perfect. I'll pay you to nurse this child for me. So now she gets paid to nurse her own child. And what we know is she ends up keeping hold of this child for multiple years, a few years anyway, because we find out later in the book of Acts that he takes that time to grow in understanding that he's an Israelite. So even when he's raised in Pharaoh's house, he calls himself a Hebrew child. That's, that's all we know. We're piecing this together throughout Scripture. But I can't help but think of the power of this little girl this middle school, junior high girl, and the wisdom and the courage that it took and the faith that it took to create an opportunity for us to now have a Moses to celebrate. Imagine, though, it's even more so for her. Because who is she? She's a slave girl in Egypt. She's praying, like the rest of their family, to be delivered, that God would provide a deliverer for them. And maybe, just maybe, it's her own little brother that's going to be the one to do that. If you're taking notes tonight, I want you to write this down. A childlike faith makes us bold and places us in a position to be used by God. Make no mistake about it. Putting herself in the view of Pharaoh's daughter was risky. Putting herself out there to recognize that this was her brother... And if Pharaoh's daughter wanted to, she could have taken the baby to, to, her, to her own dad and had him executed. Like this could have all gone downhill really fast. But there was a boldness in her. We don't know how long she waited. We don't know what it was like waiting in the bushes for Pharaoh's daughter to show up. All we know is at the right time, she popped up out of nowhere, probably scared them to death on the banks of the Nile River, pops up out of nowhere and says, I can help. And she places herself in a position to not only help herself and help her little brother, but also help her mom. Their whole family reaps the benefit of the courage and the boldness of this little girl that God had placed in perfect, this perfect opportunity to do something amazing. You see, the faith that God longs for us is to have courage and resolve and wisdom. That's what he asks of us. And he says, listen... If you can do that, if you can have that kind of faith that says, I trust God and I'm going to put myself in a position to be used by him, imagine what God wants to do through us. You know, it's really cool. When the genealogies of the Israelites are listed, almost always the genealogies are only the men. It's a patriarchal society. So it's like 
this man and had this man, had this son, had this son. Women and children, you know, female children were rarely mentioned, if ever. But in the lineage of those who were important in Numbers chapter 26, they list Miriam, the sister of Moses. That's the role that she plays. That's the significance that she has. In fact, in all of those first few books of the Bible, the foundation of the Bible, only four people are called prophets. Only four. Moses, Aaron, who's Moses' brother, Abraham, and Moses' sister, Miriam. She's listed as one of the four prophets in the first five books of the Bible. Furthermore, the prophet Micah, hundreds of years later, when talking about the salvation of the Hebrew people, lists Abraham, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. How dare this prophet mention a female's name? Why? Because he understood the significance that Miriam played. We don't know a whole lot about Miriam. She's mentioned three times in Scripture in in regards to her story of life. Two of them are really good. One of them not so good. She has a moment of weakness, which I love that Scripture talks about that in her own life. But at the end of her life, she lived to be somewhere around 120 or 130 years old. And what we are found, what we find out is that when she dies, the nation of Israel mourns her for 30 days. Why? Because as a little child, as a little child, she showed courage and resolve and wisdom well beyond her years to make this decision. Can you imagine if you were this girl and you are now on the spot having to come up with a conversation with Pharaoh's daughter about what to do with your baby brother? Like, at 43, I'm not sure I would be eloquent enough to be able to pull that off without being nervous, like sweating through all my clothes nervous, right? Like, but she did it like a boss. She pops up. She waits patiently until the right moment arrives. She pops up and says the right thing at the right time and then has the wisdom to go get her mom and be a benefit to the entire family forever. Like, this is huge for her. You say, Aaron, what does this have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with me. It has to do with the fact that if we are going to claim the kind of faith that God says he wants us to have, it requires us to take bold action judiciously with wisdom. With wisdom. So that he can use us in ways that we never maybe thought possible to be used. How many of us in this room can honestly say, when it comes to our faith walk, we are bold with our faith. I mean bold. I'm talking about ready to pop up at any moment and tell other people about the source of our hope and our faith in Jesus. I'm not saying that you maybe hide all the time, but some of us probably go through life hiding in the bulrushes of our worlds. And we're, we're Christians, and the people who are closest to us know about our faith, but how many of us consciously put ourselves in a position where if God asks us, we can pop up at any given moment's notice and with wisdom show the boldness of our faith. Even when it's not popular, even when other people may not like it. I mean, the question for us is, do we use our position to act in the providence of God? Not selfishness. Now, here's the deal, right? A lot of us will say, well, I'm bold when it comes to making decisions for me, or I'm not afraid to stand up or stand out or be different, or I'm going to do what I want to do to me. That's not what this is about. 
She was being bold in the providence of the hand of God. This had nothing to do with her own desires. It had everything to do with being bold in her faith, trusting the God that her mom and dad taught her to believe in, and then being bold for him. It's amazing to me what God can do through us if we decide to place our lives in his providence and we live out our faith in a bold way. You say, well, okay, I get the whole bold thing, Aaron, but what's the, what's the big takeaway here in this whole story? There's got to be more than just these 10 verses. Well, there is. Because I mentioned earlier, right? Between verse 10 and verse 11, 40 years takes place. And between that and the time that Moses comes back to, to Egypt to lead the people out, another 40 years takes place. Here's what we know. It takes 80 years, 80 years of Moses' life and Miriam's life and their family's lives. It takes 80 years before, ever, before God ever makes good on the promise of making Moses the deliverer of Israel. And during those 80 years, where was Miriam and her family? Slaves in Egypt. For 80 more years. And we already know that Miriam only lived 120, 130 years. So two-thirds of her life, despite being bold and despite being used by God, two-thirds of her life, she still spent in slavery in Egypt waiting for God to deliver. Waiting for God to deliver. And you know what's really cool? When, they, when he finally does, she's not bitter about it. She doesn't say to him, well, it took you long enough. She doesn't question him. She celebrates. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. A healthy faith doesn't question God's timing or his methods. A healthy faith doesn't question his timing or his methods. Now, we'd all like to know more about Moses. We'd like to know what happens in those 80 years. We'd like to know what happens in the 40 years between verse 10 and verse 11. I'd like to know... What goes through the life of Miriam and the mind of Miriam for 80 years? What happens? In particular, what happens the day her 40-year-old brother that she saved runs away from Egypt scared of Pharaoh? You want to know more about that story? Read the rest of Exodus chapter 2. Because Moses, after making a bad decision, gets caught and runs away and spends 40 years in the desert with his other family members before he ever comes back to lead the people out of Israel. What happens? What goes through the mind of Miriam when she watches this 40-year-old brother, little brother of hers, run away? Does she ever stop and go, oh, glad I saved his butt in the Nile? Does she ever say, I'm glad I ever put myself out there for him? This is the thanks I get. I mean, at this point in her life, she's in her late 40s, early 50s. No, she doesn't do any of that stuff. Here's the deal. She never questions God's timing. She never questions God's method. She stays faithful even though it's not always working for her in the way that she wants it to happen. How many of us could say the same? How many of us could say the same? Let me ask it a different way. How many of you have ever asked God to do something for you and you had to wait for his answer? Anybody? Now, how many of us waited 80 years for that answer? Let me ask another question. 
How many of us, while we were waiting, began to question God and his methodology and his sovereignty and whether or not he knows what he's doing and his timing? How many of us, even if we had to wait for only a week for God's answer, began to question whether or not God was doing what was best for us? See, that's not the kind of faith that God longs for us to have. The kind of faith that God longs for us to have says this, I trust you enough to believe that whether your timing matches my timing or your methods would be my methods, I trust you, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to question how you choose to do this. I just believe, God, you will do this for me. You see, when God says he wants us to have the faith like a child, when he wants us to be like a child and come to him, part of that says, God, I surrender my life to you and I trust you enough that I don't have to be in charge and it doesn't have to be my plan and it doesn't have to fit my timeline. I'm just going to trust you no matter what. That's what happens here in this story. Miriam says, you know what? All right. She goes on with her life. She, she marries a man from the tribe of Judah. His name is Her. And, and they begin to create a family and she raises that family the way that her mother raised her and Moses and Aaron so that her family was ready when brother Moses comes back and eventually leads them out into out of Egypt they're ready they trust him they know what God's doing there's a foundation that's been built because Miriam said I will not stop trusting God even if the timing doesn't make sense even if the methodology doesn't make sense is any wonder then that the biblical writers call her a prophet She never lost sight of God's call on her life. And she never, ever, ever discounted what God was going to do. You see, she rested in faith for years and years and years. And her faith was rewarded and her hope was realized. Until the day that they finally get across the Red Sea. And in Exodus chapter 15, we find out she can't contain her excitement anymore. And in Exodus chapter 15... Her reaction and her response to God and his faithfulness was she worshipped. In fact, it says she pulls out her tambourine and starts celebrating and sings a song. It's the first song ever recorded in scripture. Guys, if you're taking notes, write this down. Spontaneous worship is always an appropriate response to God's work in our lives. And it may not come when we expect it. And it may not happen in the way that we expect it to happen. But childlike faith says to God, I don't care about the timing. I don't care about the methodology. I trust you. And when he comes through, we will celebrate and we will worship. We'll worship. Had an opportunity. Aaron got to take her this week. I I didn't get to go. Aaron got to take Ellie to her two-year checkup. Following everything that happened at her birth with her brain hemorrhage and and the blood clots and all that happened. And so Aaron got to take Ellie to see our neurologist. And it was a big appointment. She got to see the neurologist, then the speech therapist, and then the occupational therapist, and then the physical therapist. They were gone for two or three hours. It was a long day of tests and, and all kinds of stuff. Two years ago, this same neurologist came into the hospital room where I was and said, your daughter's probably not going to make it. And this week, that same neurologist said, despite the MRI that shows the hole in her brain from the brain damage, your daughter's perfect, I don't ever need to see her 
again. Glory to God. All praise be to God. I've got a healthy two-year-old girl back there that no one would ever know has a hole in her brain. That no one would ever know two years ago I was told would not survive the week. That no one would ever know was told that even if she survived, she probably wouldn't talk or walk. She wouldn't ever be able to do the things normal children would be able to do. No one would ever No, there she is. You know what the proper response is? Praise the Lord. I I like, I'm telling you guys, we don't know the timeline that God wants to work in and we don't know the circumstances that God wants to work in. We have no idea the providence of God and the full scope of his plan for our lives. But childlike faith says this. I will put myself in a position to be used by God. I will be bold and judicious and wise and I will trust his timing and I will trust his methods because when he pulls through for me, when, not if, when he comes through, I'll be the first one to celebrate. I'll be the first one to celebrate. I only had to wait two years to get that clean bill of health for my daughter. Man, it was a tough two years. But I only had to wait two years. Some of you might still be waiting on yours. Don't give up. Childlike faith says, I don't know the timing and I don't know the methodology, but I will wait here in the bulrushes until God shows up. I may not understand his story and I may not understand my place in it, but I want a part in it. So I will be bold and wise and judicious and I will trust God because in his timing, he will deliver. And in his own way, he will answer. And it may not be what I want or how I want or how I'd expect it or when I expect it, but I will trust that he will do it and I will be the first one to celebrate when he does. I'll be the one to celebrate. It was really cool. In Exodus chapter 15, there's this whole big worship ceremony that takes place. Take some time this week and read it. This amazing time of worship takes place. As 1.2 million Israelites celebrate on the other side of the Red Sea. Right? We're not talking like 20 people cross the Red Sea. We're talking about over a million people cross the Red Sea. And they get to the other side and Pharaoh's army has been drowned. And they are free and God has delivered them. The promised land is in sight. And they begin to look at one another and they have a party. And they worship and they celebrate. And they say, man, we were, we were enslaved a long time. They... The Israelites have been slaves for 400 years. Moses had been gone 80. This is a long time. They've been waiting for this deliverance to happen. And now they're free. And so Moses and Aaron lead them in worship. And Miriam says, "Uh uh-uh, you ain't worshiping without me. And she grabs her tambourines and she starts worshiping. And they have a celebration and they sing songs to God because spontaneous worship is the way we celebrate God doing what he said he was going to do. Ellie is super, a huge part of the sermon tonight. You can't tell, right? But there's something beautiful about children. Those of us that have children, you, you know what I'm talking about. Like, 
There's something really cool when something really awesome comes on that they love watching the pure joy happen. It's simple things with Ellie, right? Like it's the Geico Gecko Lizard commercials. I don't care. It doesn't matter what Ellie's doing. When she hears the Gecko commercial, she stops and turns around and it's just like, there's just a celebration that takes place. It's pure joy. Yesterday, Chris Olave makes that over-the-shoulder catch, and Daddy goes, Woo! Ellie turns around, looks at the TV, goes, Yay! I'm like, training my daughter right. Tonight, she shows up for worship, and as soon as the music starts playing, she pokes her head, I don't know if anybody saw it, she pokes her head out from around the chairs, and she starts pointing at the band, and she's stomping her feet and clapping her hands. There's a celebration. There's a reason why God wants us to have childlike faith, because children know what it's like to celebrate when good things happen. And unfortunately, the church is filled with old, curmudgeoned, mature Christians that have forgotten the beauty of celebrating what God does. Miriam didn't. Oh, and by the way, in Exodus chapter 15, Miriam's somewhere between 95 and 100 years old. And she pulls out the tambourines and starts celebrating and singing. That's childlike faith. We should never be ashamed to worship. We should never be ashamed to celebrate. But it will always be the byproduct of a childlike faith that is well lived throughout our lives. So we're going to take anything away this week. We're going to tweet or post or live anything out this week. I want it to be this. Childlike faith eagerly looks for opportunities to be used by God and then celebrates in spontaneous worship when God moves. It's two things, right? I'm eagerly looking for ways for God to use me and I'm ready to celebrate when he does. That's what childlike faith looks like for us. And that's why I believe God says, The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Oh, and by the way, in case you've forgotten, heaven's filled with celebrations. In fact, there's only a handful of really clear descriptors of heaven. One of them is a supper party, a wedding party. Another is the music and the celebration of the saints and the angels singing glory to God. I might as well start practicing now, being childlike in my faith and celebrating in spontaneous acts of worship because that's what eternity looks like. And I want to be ready for that. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I'm so grateful that there there are moments throughout scripture that serve as great reminders for us of what we're supposed to act like and who we're supposed to be in our faith walk. I'm so grateful that many of those are children, whether it's the boy who gave his lunch, whether it's Samuel who served in the tabernacle, whether it's Miriam who watched over her little brother in the Nile. Lord, there are so many instances where you chose the beauty and the simplicity and the, and the joy and the exuberance and the honesty and the humility of children to model for us what our faith is supposed to look like. I pray, God, that you would allow us to to live into that. In particular, this week, as we settle our hearts towards this time of gratitude and thanksgiving, I pray that you would allow us to just be even more bold and judicious and wise in the way that we live out our faith so that we don't miss opportunities, so that we're ready 
when those opportunities present themselves. And then, Father, may we have the kind of childlike faith that isn't worried about what other people think, but we just start celebrating whenever you show up and show off. Because spontaneous worship is the act of childlike faith celebrating what we knew to be true. Not worried about the timing, not worried about the methodology. We just trust that you're going to get it done and we're going to celebrate when it happens. Lord, give us that kind of spirit and that kind of desire and that kind of childlike faith and wonderment this week. As we spend time with our families, as we celebrate with people that we love, may we exemplify that kind of childlike faith. And may others want to know why we are wired that way and give us the ability and opportunity to tell it. Lord, we love you. Thanks for loving us. Amen. 